Alright, party people! Welcome back to She Existed, the podcast wherein I, Ashlyn Romagnoli, share the stories of women from history and legend who until now were completely unknown to me. We are back with part two of what I am calling the Salon Series, all about women who ran or participated in literary or creative salons in history. Because there are so many awesome women who have done this across so many cultures and centuries, I couldn't pick just one woman or even culture to feature. Hence, the series, roughly chopped up by culture. Part one was women of the literary salons of the Arab world. I'm biased, but it was pretty good, so maybe go give that a listen. Today, we are covering ladies of the English coffee houses, what some might call the seedy underbelly of the salon world that we're canvassing in this series. This particular iteration of a salon is a tiny touch nearer and dearer to my heart because the tradition in England began in Oxford, where I was very, very fortunate to spend a year of my undergraduate. And in fact, I even spent as much study time as I could possibly afford, which was not a ton in those days, at Queen's Lane Coffee House, which claims to be the oldest continually serving coffee house in Europe. As with most claims of this sort, it is kind of disputed. However, Queen's Lane was opened in 1654, so it is at least among the earliest. Now, I wouldn't usually go into this much detail about something that actually isn't specifically really that pertinent to our subject, or I don't know, maybe I would. (laughs) I do seem to run on quite a bit, don't I? But uh, anyway, our subject today is, of course, ladies of the English coffee houses. So a focus on the women who are there, not necessarily the establishments themselves or the history of the establishments themselves. But I have an ulterior motive in mentioning Queen's Lane here now. Um, Because I didn't know until this round of research that Queen's Lane was established by a man named Cirque Jobson, who came to England from Syria. So the reason, of course, that I'm pausing on this right now is because of the very unfortunate timing of my publishing a piece on the salons of the Arab world, just as one of my home countries, the U.S., decided to bomb Syria. In addition to my discovery that I couldn't find any of Mariana Marash's poetry available to read in English which is really insane and shitty. If you couldn't tell, I'm staunchly anti-violence, except in the cases of self-defense, and I'm very pro-poetry. So, since I wasn't able to talk about this in time for the last episode, I'm both noting it here and taking this opportunity to make sure I mention and elevate any cross-cultural connections that I can come across. So, a big thank you to Mr. Jobson from Syria for originating the coffee house in Oxford, the tradition of which, of course, later spread all across the country. All right, so today we're going to focus on two ladies, Elizabeth Adkins, or Moll King as she is better known, and Anne Rochford, who both lived in the mid-18th century. As I mentioned earlier, we can think of a salon as a place where people came together to discuss the ideas of the day, maybe share contemporary literature or poetry, but well, of course the devil, as always, is in the details. So while thinking of something like a French salon might conjure up like a genteel noblewoman fanning herself and cleverly flirting using witty comebacks from the latest political pamphlet, this was not exactly what was happening in the English coffee houses, which were also known as the Penny Universities. The Penny Universities were rowdy and poppin' joints, much more egalitarian and open affairs than the salons we talked about last week or we will talk about next week, since, well, Anyone could join in as long as they had a penny for the coffee. Mostly men, of course. It is still the 18th century. But the idea of this kind of social mixing was a pretty new one, historically speaking. It is what we can call the world of the public sphere, 
which Markman Ellis describes by invoking Habermas in Women, Writing, in the Public Sphere, a collection of essays about this very subject. Ellis describes Habermas's conception of the public sphere as being, quote, founded in its simple accessibility to individuals who come together without hierarchy and an equality of voice. He stresses the role of new institutions in the formation of the bourgeois public sphere and identifies the coffee house as its first and to some extent paradigmatic institution. Through their discussions, first of literature and later of news and politics, the individuals who assemble in the coffee house come to form a new public culture. So this is a whole new world of social affairs and not always the most savory, but also strangely liberating, especially for certain women. Because although women of good reputation would not necessarily have found themselves in a coffee house, the fact is that coffee houses were not infrequently run by women who became famous in their own time. Women who made mad bank and seemingly enjoyed themselves. Heaven forbid. <laughs> Malking was one such infamous proprietor. She was born Elizabeth Adkins in 1696 to a shoemaker father and a mother who sold fish and vegetables and apparently her own body. In Helen Berry's fascinating lecture called Rethinking Politeness in 18th Century England, Mall King's Coffee House and the Significance of Flash Talk, and don't worry, we'll get to Flash Talk in a bit, Berry wrote, quote, When still very young, our heroine was obliged to get her bread in the streets with her mother. As a consequence, Mall was later unable to hold down a job as a servant, since, being much used to the streets, she could not brook confinement within doors. Girl, I hear that. <laughs> Sorry. Her familiarity with urban street life is suggestive of independence and a wild, untamable nature, as well as denoting the more obvious implication of sexual disrepute. Okay, sorry for all the commentary in the middle of that quote. Hopefully it's pretty easily discernible what were Barry's words and her references versus my stupid jabs. <laughs> Maul, as we will call her moving forward, for she had many aliases, but that is the most common one, eventually married a man supposedly of a higher social status who just enjoyed kind of slumming it, who was known as Smooth Face Tom, which I'm going to assume is a compliment. Not 100% sure on that. But she found the whole marriage thing not exactly to her taste, choosing instead to work as a prostitute due to her friendship with a famous courtesan of the day, Sally Salisbury, who herself has a very interesting life story. After only a short while, however, Maul went back to old Smooth Face, and then once they'd saved up enough pennies selling nuts on the street, and that is not a euphemism, as far as I can tell, they were actually literally selling nuts, they eventually opened up King's Coffee House in around 1717, so that was quite in the heyday of the popularity of these kinds of establishments. Now, King's Coffee House, although it did sell coffee and served as a meeting place with a number of periodicals and literature for patrons to peruse and discuss, also acted as a front for a thriving sex trade. Note that I did not say brothel, because Maul made certain that there were no beds in the place, specifically to avoid getting shut down for such activities. There was one bed, actually, for the married couple, but it was in the roof, accessible only by a rickety ladder, so I doubt that was getting much extracurricular use. Apparently, Maul used this fact many times when she ran afoul of the law. No beds? How could it be a brothel? Airtight. <laughs> Now, what is interesting is that King's Coffee House saw all kinds of patrons. Ellis notes that Maul's, quote, coffee house was transgressive for its promiscuous mixture of high and low status groups. These groups included literary notables like Alexander Pope and Henry Fielding, and once even saw George II within its walls. 
Moll played a major role in actually running the coffee house and was said to remain sober to tend to its affairs while her husband drank. She also ran yet another successful side hustle as a moneylender. In fact, Moll did so well that eventually she and her husband purchased an estate that included a villa with two houses. Sadly, the same year they bought it, uh, 1739, her husband died, allegedly of alcoholism. Moll, however, continued running the coffee shop completely solo for another six years or so, but she herself began turning to drink and increasingly sketchy behavior. Apparently, she would break shit and leave it on people's tables and then charge them for the damages, convinced that they'd all be so drunk they wouldn't even notice that it was a scam. She earned the nickname Virago for her fierceness. Another fun little fact about Moll's Coffee House is that it was famous for her and her patrons' use of flash, which was a kind of slang or coded language of the day, ostensibly for patrons to request less than legal fare. Here's an excerpted conversation from a pamphlet published in her own time about the subject that included examples of flash as well as a glossary in the back. <laughs> You'll see why it needed a glossary in just a moment. Moll says, he doss in a pad of mine. No, boy, if I was to grapple him, he must shiver his trotters at Bilby's ball. We had your dutters and your duffers, files, buggers, and slangers. We had ne'er a queer cull, a buttock, or a porpoise amongst them. But all as rum and quiddish as ever, Jonathan sent to be great merchants in Virginia. And then Harry says, But Maul, don't puff. You must tip me your clout before I derrick, for my bloss has nailed me of mine. But I shall catch her at Maddox's gin ken, sluicing her gob by the tinny. And if she is morked it, knocks and socks, thumps and pumps, shall attend the frofile buttocking bitch. <laughs> oh my gosh, I barely kept it together. <laughs> Especially at sluicing her gob. Like, what? <laughs> it's practically another language. Uh, hence the glossary. Maul eventually remarried a man named Hoff, which is cool, who tried to avail himself of her fortune but apparently she refused either to give up her cash or her first husband's last name. Moll died a very wealthy woman just a couple of years after shutting down her coffee house in 1747. Another such scandalous proprietress of this time was named Anne Rochford, who was called the Velvet Coffee Woman after a prank in which a nobleman brought her and two other coffee house women to the king's court dressed in velvet to dupe the rest of the courtiers into thinking they were virtuous noblewomen. Apparently, they all did a great job, and the king himself was intrigued by Anne. Eh. Anne, either in legend or in fact, apparently had a sensible and virtuous upbringing, and even ran a successful property development business before turning to prostitution and the opening of her coffee house in Charing Cross. Though of course this isn't exactly seen as the most obvious career choice, Anne's biographer or biographers, who wrote a book called The Life, Gallantries, and Amours of the Late Famous Mrs. Anne Rochford, noted that she had, quote, something strong in her diversions, loved to associate chiefly with rakes and affected masculine pleasures. So it seems not impossible that she enjoyed her work and chose this life, and her coffee house was very fashionable in its day. And perhaps my favorite quote from that work notes that the calling, yes, that is the word that was used, of the coffee house women was, quote, both for coffee and intrigue. My kind of place. Despite the vivacity and liveliness of the heyday of the English coffee houses, they wouldn't last as a fashionable gathering place much past the end of the 18th century. No matter how much we like to think so, history isn't just a progression. So even though during this time people, well, mostly men, of course, from all walks of life and station came together to talk and whore and hang out as relative equals in a way they really hadn't previously, eventually 
snobbery won the day once again. More wealthy men began frequenting private clubs and more specific literary clubs, sans coffee and other naughty activities, developed. But Brahma's book, A Modern View of 300 Years of Tradition, which I would love to read all of, <laughs> it sounds amazing, notes perhaps my favorite explanation for the decline of the coffee shop. Quote, To brew tea, all that is needed is to add boiling water. Coffee, in contrast, required roasting, grinding, and brewing. <gasps> and there you have it. Just as video killed the radio star, tea killed coffee. In England, anyway. And it's still kind of true today. So, I'll take a quick moment to note that, yes, there were more reputable iterations of the salon run by women in England around this time. One such woman was Clementia Taylor, who ran a pen and pencil club, sharing the work of young talent. Clementia, called Mencia, I guess that's all you can do when your name is Clementia, Mencia. She was apparently a very kind and intelligent woman who was instrumental in achieving women's suffrage. Her salons were noted by Louisa May Alcott and visited by many notable women of the day, such as feminists Elizabeth Blackwell and Elizabeth Mallison. Oh, and I was absolutely delighted to note that Arthur Munby used to attend her pen and pencil club, too. But who is Arthur Munby, you ask? Well, let's just say that at some point, I'll introduce you to Hannah Culwick, and we will have a whole episode about her and Munby, whose sexual proclivities led to the most complete account of the life of a servant woman that we have from that time. So, that's all you need to know right now, but get hyped for Hannah Colwick, because it's a weird one. All right, anyway, the autobiography of Elizabeth Mallison stated that, quote, Menchia and her husband were admirably free of class prejudice in persons and opinions, which really interested me because it ties in so neatly to the coffee houses that we were just talking about. Perhaps the pen and pencil club was less inundated with prostitutes, but you still get the sense of a society in flux, a mixing of more previously stratified classes. The fact is, one of the things I adore the most about learning about the coffee houses and Mall and Anne is the sheer amount of agency their roles as proprietors of these establishments gave them, in a time when women didn't really have that many options. Now, I'm not really saying that prostitute is always an appealing job, although I'm sure there are plenty of women who freely choose it as their work who enjoy it, but there weren't all that many options available to women with drive and ambition. We aren't all fortunate enough to be born clementias, which requires a lot of money and privilege. So I'll end with another quote from Barry, who noted, The history of Moll's career suggests that she was the epitome of an early 18th century urban woman, with little to lose and much to gain resolutely entrepreneurial, and material successful throughout her life stages. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this weird and wild ride. Here are a few fun things you can try researching on your own. Moll King, M-O-L-L-K-I-N-G, Anne Rochford, Rochford is spelled R-O-C-H-E-F-O-R-D, oh, and I guess Anne, Anne is A-N-N-E, but uh, just be careful, there are a few Anne Rochfords, it's not an uncommon name, so you might toss coffee house into the query or something like that. English coffee houses, duh. Flash slang, so flash is in bang, uh, F-L-A-S-H. And Clementia Taylor, Clementia is spelled C-L-E-M-E-N-T-I-A, and Taylor is T-A-Y-L-O-R. And that's it for Ladies of the English Coffee Houses. Thanks for listening, see you next time. Oh